Before you hear today's show, we have a follow-up message from our guest about a statement he made that was in an earlier edition of this release. That comment has been removed from the podcast. We apologize for its inclusion in the original broadcast. I was a guest on the Beyond the Mic podcast, which I'm doing. Great podcast, by the way. And that podcast episode aired on April 29th, 2022. And during the interview, I was discussing how a friend of mine, Pam Smith, lost her son. And I used the verbiage, they went to an in and out before they uh, stopped at somebody's house to buy Xanax to chill out a bit. I meant that her son and his girlfriend went, not that Pam was there, she was not there at all. Pam Smith was not uh, and did not participate in any manner of fashion, provide narcotics, illegal or otherwise, to her child. She wasn't there. Nor did uh, she accompany him to purchase anything, nor did she have any idea what was going on. And uh, so if I misspoke, it was just a malaprop by me, and I apologize for that. The day before Pam's son died, Pam's son was with his girlfriend who accompanied him to the drug dealer's house to purchase narcotics. Her son took the counterfeit oxycodone that was released with fentanyl in the early morning hours of July 3rd, 2016, and died. So I want to just clear that up. Pam's a good friend of mine. In no way, shape, or form did I want to insinuate that she was there. She had no knowledge of that whatsoever. So I just wanted to make that clear. Thank you. Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the star line by a filmmaker, podcaster, and leader. His crusade is to try and limit the paralyzing fentanyl crisis faced by families everywhere. We welcome Darren Redman. Uh, thank you. Thank you, my friend. How are you? Absolutely great, Darren. Let's go beyond the mic. You were once coach of the Brooklyn College softball team, line coach for the Brooklyn College football team. How do you go from there to helping families on what could be their darkest day? It's a wonderful question. It sort of works this way. Because I was working with youth, young, young people, young women and men, coaching, you then talk to these people on the field and off the field, and you get to know the parents. And so you, you sort of know the vernacular. You know how to talk to them, and they open up to you because the way you talk is by listening. And you just are a good, conscientious listener. And I've taken that skill set with me into the corporate world, into the nonprofit world, and into the streets with the Narcan Initiative and fentanyl and and uh, as a documentary filmmaker and as a podcaster. We all have addictions from video games to watching bad reality shows. Some people are addicted to sex, alcohol, drugs. What are the scars you've hidden for so long? That is a wonderful question. And it's interesting because I was thinking about that this morning. I, I was driving to uh, work this morning and I was listening to our mutual friend, Krista Gabriel, on the radio this morning. And a question came up about, have you gone back to the movies yet? And I bring that up because my addiction from early on was the movies. There was a lot of animosity in my house before the divorce. Young kid in the 70s. And um, so I would go to the movie theaters at eight years old, nine years old by myself and sit there all day. They didn't kick you out back then. 
and I would watch movies and get lost there. And that was my addiction. I'd come home and I'd watch The Odd Couple, then uh, was The Twilight Zone, and then Star Trek, and then Out of Limits. And that was sort of what I would do. I'd watch TV and watch movies and get lost. That was my addiction. Why did you have to get lost? A little bit of middle child syndrome. I was a kid that, as a son of a police officer who grew up where you never wanted to embarrass your family, a very Italian-Irish household, where the the edict was we would do nothing ever to embarrass you, and they never did. Um, Don't do anything to embarrass us. Uh, my sister was the youngest and was the prize and still is. She's wonderful. I have a wonderful relationship with my sister. I love her very much. My brother was three or four years older. When my dad left the house after the divorce, my mom was working. I would go to school, walk home, and sit in front of a TV and get lost there. That was my playmate. That was my way of learning about the world. I learned more from Michael Landon in Little House in the Prairie than I did in um, what I learned in school, really. When there's tough times, go to work. You know, there's a maker, pray for them. You know, pray to your maker and go and work hard. Never embarrass your family. You have a wanderlust in your life after a career selling Yellow Page ads to helping now nonprofits and schools. How did that happen? I mean, how did your life change from employee, manager, regional manager, director to now nonprofit, school? In pain, what was the significant moment when you went from hunting money to helping others? I I wish it was that altruistic. There was always that there. One of the greatest books I ever read was by Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace. And we can kind of talk about that later because I'm a big believer in grace. But I reached, uh, I was about a little bit over 50 years old, doing well in the corporate world, but understanding that I was a piece of firewood. That when things got too hot and they needed to continue to burn, I would be expendable. And that's what happened. So you face the reality of, I can, I'm over 50. I could be Willie Loman real quick. What skill sets do I have and what do I actually care about? So it became an opportunity for me to say, okay, let me live off the 501k for a while. My wife is working. What do I really intrinsically want to do. And that's help people. I want to help the the person who sometimes gets glossed over because they're polite, because they're shy, because they don't raise their hands and say, notice me. They have the, I want to be a good child syndrome. And they never reach out and say, I'm getting bullied in school, or I am uh, feeling pressure to do certain things with a boyfriend that maybe you don't want to do. I, from the time I was a child, I always felt for those people. I was very empathetic. I could read what somebody says sometimes in their eyes and just listen. So at that time, I said, you know what? I'm going to give my life to nonprofits, help these nonprofits out, because they need, a lot of nonprofits need corporate understanding about how to grow. And I can do that and then help people. But what happened somewhere along the line is I went from the back office to the front lines because when my dad went through his alcoholism, but we ended up sleeping in homeless shelters at least once or twice a month. And I found that it's great to serve them food, the people there, and it's great to fluff their pillow. 
But the real beauty is what you and I do for a living, or for a living, what we do now in podcasting, we were doing then. And that is when they wake up 3 o'clock in the morning and they want to fix, or they're itching, or that they just got something on them, you just sit and you listen, and you talk. I learned that skill talking to homeless people, homeless families. When you have a mother who is homeless, and she is holding her nine-year-old daughter, knowing that there's probably some people already who's going to try to touch her, and trying to tell them that it's okay. You don't want to. You don't want to sit with that person at three in the morning when they wake up, and you want to say, "Hey, you know why are you homeless, or what bad mistakes did you make?" No, you want to treat that person with the grace that they have because they are a human being. They did not wake up in the morning one day when they were seven years old and say, God, I hope I grow up and make bad choices. You have to treat them with respect. So I learned that from there. And I always try to lead that way. Your best leader is a a follower, right? You know, in in terms of helping these people as a servant. And I try to serve people. The synthetic fentanyl epidemic is growing exponentially Has this epidemic grown to where people in power around the world will make choices to help it before it gets out of control? Whenever there's a horrific shooting, we hear about gun control and got to get better, better handle on guns. And we do. When you hear about COVID and people dying, fentanyl is important for the moment when you seem to know somebody who looks like you and lives in a similar house that you do becomes important. And then people forget about it. I had a situation in the summer where I wanted to hand out, through pain, I wanted to hand out 300 boxes of Narcan for free. Understand, if you go to the pharmacy, it's going to cost you about $130. So help me out here. Explain what Narcan does. Narcan is an opioid reversal agent. Basically, in the simplest form, your opioid receptors rather feast on that than on the opioid that's in your body. So this is what EMT first responders give to you, give to the person who overdoses when you call them. It is life-saving. I've seen it save people's lives. So when you call an EMT and there's somebody's overdosing in the house, this is what they give them. I wanted to give it away for free. And here's some of the reaction, not always, but here's some of the reaction I got. What are you trying to send me, kids, drug addict? I can't have that in my house. People are going to think that one of us in this family gets high all the time. What are you trying to say about me? Then I had another person say, I'd rather somebody die in my house than me give them this and they over- and then somehow they die and sue me. How does that make you feel? It makes me ill. It makes me ill that people are concerned more about their ego, their hubris, or their bank account than about saving somebody's life. It's starting to change, but to answer your original question, unfortunately, it really won't become a top-of-mind thing until somebody in a politician's family or somebody that they know or some leader somewhere has a child who dies from it. Did you like Prince? He died of a fentanyl overdose. Do you like Michael Jackson? He died of a fentanyl overdose. Do you like uh, the gentleman from The Wire who was in Body Brokers? He died from, a, from an accidental fentanyl overdose that was in the cocaine that he was taking. And these are not bad people. These are people that have a lot of money. They have means. 
but fentanyl will kill you. My wife, Joanna, had a incredible kidney stone, very large. They were trying to get it to break up on its own. And at one point, it was painful beyond belief. So we went to the emergency room. Mm-hmm. And at one point they're like, look, we're going to give you, we're going to give you something to take the edge off. And they gave her fentanyl. Mm-hmm. And within 10 seconds of it, her being injected, she goes, Oh, yep. Yep. Oh my gosh. Now I know why they get addicted to this. Our friend, the, the person who, who um, created pain, Flint Anderson, he has a great line. He said that he hears from people. I never not want to feel this way again when they take fentanyl. It's that addicting. Man, it got deep. So we need to lighten the mood. You know what that means. No. I'm ready for Rocky Nade, but nervous. This is going to be great. So it's time for the Rocky Nade. Eight random questions. Answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. Darren, there's no pressure. Mm-hmm. Movie that no matter when it comes on or where it is in the movie, you always turn it on and you always to watch it to the end. Wizard of Oz. Darren, what do you put on top of a hot dog, ketchup or mustard? Mustard, please. You're a sports guy. What's the favorite event you've ever seen in person? Favorite sports event, and did you live scorecard it? Montreal, the all-star game. Wow. And yes, but lost the darn card. I wish I still had it. What's your favorite cigar you've ever smoked? A cigar given to me by um, Don Pepin. He was, he's a wonderful cigar maker out of Miami, Don Pepin Garcia, and uh, it was wonderful. And I got to meet him and my uh, Espanol Paquito at the time, and uh, he was just a wonderful man. How about your best memory from Buck Owens' Crystal Palace? <sighs> knowing, it, it, it's opaque, knowing the history that was there when I would go there, that that, that Bakersfield sound originated from there. Same feeling I got when I was at CBGB's. Favorite cartoon of all time? Bugs Bunny. So what's a typical workout for you? Chest, shoulders and legs, back and buys. You're a known Kindle reader. What's the last book you read? A book called Curious. It's time for the back half with filmmaker, podcaster, and leader Darren Redman beyond the mic. Darren, how has your wife helped you from a life in the fast lane to a life of charity? I've been married to my wife. It's going to be 26 years. She's my best friend. She is a rock of sanity. She would tell you otherwise. But she'd be like, okay, this is what's going on. Now what? Or you have this skill set. What are you going to die with it and put it in a box? Use it. That's the way my wife talks in a good way. Very, she, she's not a pat, pat person on the head kind of. She's more like a, let me help you up. Now get out there and kick some butt. Why is that so crucial for you? because sometimes as athletes or whatever we do for a living, we are very good actors. That confidence that I supposedly have, I have when I'm in the middle of war. But when I'm not in the middle of that war, if we think we can outthink people and we think that our our head is, uh, we can outthink, what happens when that head turns itself on yourself? So my dad used to have this thing he would tell me, don't let anything live in your head rent free. And I tend to do that. And my wife can mentally grab it out of my head and throw it on the ground and step on it and say, stop. That's stinking thinking. Move on. Don't Hide the Scars is not only a documentary, but a podcast I've had the honor of guesting on. 
Why yes. is this Don't Hide the Scars project so important for you? I see it in what you do, too, because people sometimes don't realize the pain that they're in or the joy that they have, and they just are sort of living their life. What happens when those scars are part of who you are? They made you. They toughened you up. It's not a pity party. We, we in the American culture sometimes to our deficit think that, hey, we shouldn't talk about the bad things that happened to us. No, it's part of who we are. Use it. So there's somebody out there right now who um, may hear a story about your wife and taking fentanyl and might be going through the same thing with their significant other and hear what happened. So now they can anticipate and they could say, hey, this sounds familiar. Thank you. So I don't know if that's a good answer, but that's the honest answer. If someone hasn't seen the documentary, shame on them. But tell them about the stories and how hard was it to put this all together? The podcast brings forth a lot of people that um, tell their stories. And after a while, we want to put a few of these stories together and get it on film because it's so compelling. And the problem is, how do you tell it without it sounding like an after-school special? And how do you do it by showing respect and not exploiting the person? But we're talking to people who not one, not two, but three different mothers who all lost their children to overdoses. Not under the bridge somewhere, but in their homes, or in one case, in their son's apartment. These are people who all lost their their children, two of the three, by having drugs delivered to their home like DoorDash, paid for with Venmo. There are still people don't understand that that happens all the time, that you could be sick. There used to be this culture when you and I grew up that said, you know, if I can get this kid in by nine o'clock at night, at least he's safe in my house. Not anymore. It brings me back to the, it's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? Correct. And you know what happened in one case with Frankie De Palma? He was at dinner with his mother and he wasn't trying to kill himself, but he ordered Xanax on Venmo. Or you, uh, he ordered Xanax on um, the internet, paid for it with Venmo, was delivered to his house like DoorDash, was playing Xbox with his friends. His mother found him dead with the headphones on the next morning in his room. Darren, you said, quote, I miss Mary Queen of Heaven, Little League Baseball, and I miss that decade plus of yes. music, fun, and Brooklyn Nights, unquote. What made those Brooklyn Nights so wonderful? The organic reality of life. You never knew who was going to show up. Everybody was broken. And what we, what we did was we took all our broken pieces and we made a Monet out of it. Everybody was just authentic. It was okay to curse if you were upset. It was okay to not be perfect. And the music was great. And the culture was great. And the diversity was organic. People say, I'm Irish, I'm Irish Italian, Black, Jewish, Caribbean. Because everything was in my neighborhood. And I am a microcosm of all of that DNA that that went out in those Brooklyn nights. They were wonderful. I still miss them. How did those nights change the way you think today is? Oh, everything. Because you know what? The old saying, can't BS a BS artist. And that's what it was. You'd you'd get your buff called. And if if you you and I would throw down, and we would throw down. But you know what? It was over the next day. 
It was over the next day. And you know what? You gained some respect for me, and I gained some respect for you, regardless if you beat me up or I beat you up. And you know what? And we worked hard, and you partied hard, and you played sports hard, and you broke up the double play. And I was showing you disrespect if I didn't bring you bring my A game in everything that I did. We've been talking about respect today. So how has respect changed from those days to today? Because it was allowed to be redefined. I'm going to sound like I'm all over a map for a minute, but please stay with me. So, for example, we just talked about you and I beating each other up, right? We had an argument on the softball field, the football field, whatever the case may be. Nowadays, our parents would threaten to sue each other's parents. We would not have played that softball game because parents would be involved and that uh, it would have to be organized. And there's some, there's some sort of legal document that says that I'm not allowed to use an aluminum bat. You have to, it's, everything's over-officiated. We're not allowed to make mistakes. We're not allowed to figure things out for ourselves. And I don't think, quite frankly, it's because the parents care more. I think it's because they, they're, they're, they're actually lazier. Time for a blast from Darren's social media past. You once wrote, quote, a child alone on a seesaw cannot make it operate. Wow. Much like in the same way we as adults can't live full lives if we don't have others to share our ride through life with. Others to help with our joys, burdens, and love. We can only give if others are there to receive. We can only receive when others are around us to give, unquote. How has life changed from your time growing up? to now and what are your favorite memories from the past wow first off you do you do your homework (laughs) we know that i i you have me speechless it's changed that i've gone back to when you're involved in the corporate world you just have this fake armor that you wear that you don't want to believe is fake and at the same time you i I always want was the person who went back are you okay what's going on hey you want to throw let's throw but as a kid i knew what it was like to be alone i knew what it was like to be judged i knew what it was like to be told by loving family members that you can't tell your friends that your parents are, are uh, divorced because you're illegitimate then. And, you know, those kind of things. So I know what that's like. I know what that's like. You know, I got punched in the face by my dad when I was taking him to detox when I was driving. him, And he apologized to me. And I said to him, Dad, you don't understand. I was 18 at the time. You don't understand. I've never been more proud of you. Those skill sets at 56 treat me very well because of the things I've learned when I was a child. Why do you think that grace is so important and so lacking today? Because grace is absolutely free to give and you get nothing in return. There's no reciprocity. I mean this sincerely. You say hello to somebody or hold the door for somebody, you might have saved them from killing themselves. You'll never know it. You'll never get a thank you card. You might have, that might have been the reason they didn't take that drug or, or do something stupid with their life. 
That's grace. Grace is giving to somebody else with absolutely no expectation to get anything back. Not even playing it forward. It's just out there. You do it. And it's missing because it doesn't make you popular. It doesn't get you likes. It doesn't get you shares on Insta. It doesn't get you thing on, t- on TikTok. It's, you, you can't really explain it to people. It's nebulous. If you can't define it right, it doesn't exist kind of thing. But it's, it's more important now than ever. How has your own homelessness changed the way you look at possessions right now? I still am not great with money. Um, I got to tell you, if you ever seen, and you have, I'm sure, a middle-aged or older, let's use a gentleman in this case, wearing somebody else's suit to try to get a job, and they're holding their tie, their one tie, that a friend had to put on them, that tie is a million-dollar item to them. It's giving them something to hold on to in terms of their dignity, which is right up there with grace. So my thought is with possessions, you don't know how important certain things are to people. I don't judge anybody's possessions or what they have or why they have it. We live in a society that throws a lot of things away. When you talk to people who literally eat out of garbage cans, it changes your perspective forever. Darren Redman from the Don't Hide the Scars documentary and podcast joins us beyond the mic. You believe in blooming where you are planted. Why? Because that's where you are. We're We're not given any assurances that tomorrow will happen. So you can't wait. You can't wait. You can plan, but you can't wait. So regardless of where you are, you have to make things happen for yourself. You have to, and this is not a negative term, manipulate the scenarios that you're in to help you be the best person you can be. And part of that is not hurting other people. That's what you have to do, regardless of where you are. You know, my, my, I go back to my dad, who, as you know, is one of my hero, is my hero. He used to tell me, when, when you have four or five people around you and you're going to take your beat, you take your beat like a man. But you know what? You boom and you plant it by hitting the biggest one. You take that biggest one out so they know that they're going to be in a fight. And it's that way in everything in life. When I decided to go back to school, get my master's degree, and I said this to no hubris, I graduated with distinction. You know how many people, the same people that, that said I would never go back to school get my undergraduate degree, well, this, these were the same people that said, why are you going back? Who, what are you proving? You got a wife, you got a family, you, you have kids, you have a career. Why are you going back? It's always about you. It's about you. You have to make sure that you can't help everybody else. If you, if you know anybody who's been in programs, you can't help anybody unless you help yourself first. How do you want people to remember you when you're gone? I want them to remember me by not knowing that they're remembering me, but that the people that I've interacted with and the people that have learned from me, whatever that means, have helped make their lives better or at least have been pleasant. So they might not know that it came from me, 
I had uh, somebody once tell me that on my tombstone is going to read, Heal lies everyone's big brother. And I think that kind of says it the best. Coming soon will be the second Don't Hide the Scars documentary. What do you see as the future of this series? We've gotten wonderful feedback from people who have come up to us. And we already had an idea in, plan, in place. Flint had this wonderful idea in place that we want to do. And I, without giving too much away, I can tell you this. We talked about, in the first one, how these children died. And we had three other people who were going through redemption and, and coming off through the other side and doing all right. The second one is 24 hours of an addict. What goes on? When the mother thinks the kid's upstairs shaving, no, he's in the bathroom, he's, he's, he's chopping up pills, and he's snorting. And where do they hide this stuff in the house? Where, where's, the, where's the safe under the bed? What's going So we want to do the second one is 24 hours of an hour. And then we're going to move on. We're going to, different, different ones will be about different things. What does rehabilitation look like? What do you, if you ever go into recovery, what do you have to look out for? What do you got to avoid? What about the person that relapses? See, that's like one of these things. Like, and again, I don't judge. People do different things. But if you have, for example, five years of sobriety, and then you have a bad night, and you slip up, does that throw the five years out the window? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. You're in recovery. You're not infallible. You know, let's get back on the horse, and you know, let's get, get back on this thing. You don't say, well, I'm starting to square one. No, you're not. You have five years of good habits behind you. We want to, in all of these, sort of like Jenga and Legos, we're going to build on top of everything that you have before. And there will always be interconnection between the previous one, this one, and the next one. And then sometimes three behind, because we're going to continue to do this, volume one, volume two, on and on and on. And um, we could not have been happier. Two, two sold-out nights and was on, on television on Fox 26 recently and it's a lot of work and you wouldn't mind it being shown everywhere to anyone everywhere any day anytime for free take it it's yours save life because when, when i have a mother call, call me up and say i had no idea and this happened that you can use venmo to buy drugs and they look on their door cam and they see video of people showing up the house at one o'clock in the morning with drugs that scared the heck out of her and that's what we wanted. It's time for one big question with Darren Redman from the Don't Hide the Scars documentary and podcast. Darren, what's the one wish you have? That my family is healthy. That my family is healthy. My family, and, and, and when I say my family, the people in my life, that they stay healthy. And that they know I love them. Now, we've dealt with heavy stories today. I want to hear one story from the luncheonette back at Utica and Avenue K in Brooklyn. When you're part of the luncheonette crew, you peeled potatoes, not because you were getting paid, but because you were part of the crew. I'm going to give you two into one. One is disgusting, but you ha- but so, you know, luncheonette has a big, big luncheonette counter, right? So I'm sitting there with my dad one time. I'm about six. And he, I'm talking to him. And all of a sudden, he sees me chewing gum. And he, he just, it dawns on him, where'd you get the gum? I, and I go, I got it from under the, ca- under, under the counter. It was stuck right. <laughs> that actually happened. That was true. So the luncheon that was owned by a gentleman, Henry, who survived Auschwitz. 
And I was eight years old, and he gathered a whole bunch of us kids together, and he showed us the tattoos on his arm and told us all about watching the man with the white glove send his sister and his mother to her death, and he was supposed to join them. And then he said, no, no, you look like you can work. And I remember that like it was yesterday. That is what a luncheon is about, believe it or not. You get real life stuff through people who come in. Gentleman who bought it from Henry, his name was Felix. He snuck out of Russia and um, for freedom of religion. It's just amazing. A luncheon, you know, it's a wonderful place. It just is. People watch the show, Alice, you'll get understanding. Here lies everybody's big brother will be on his tombstone. He'll always stop to watch The Wizard of Oz and always likes pulling out a scorecard when he's at a baseball game. Yes. The Don't Hide the Scars documentary is available online. We thank director, podcaster, dad, and our friend Darren Redmond for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Thank you so much. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic. <laughs>